To understand today's story, you need to understand a little bit about the Rwandan genocide of 1994. You also need to learn about the years of agitation that led to that massacre. Trigger warning, this episode contains descriptions of war and sexual violence. In April 1994, the Rwandan genocide began. Hundreds of thousands of lives were lost in the East African country as civilians and militia from one tribe brutally murdered members of a minority tribe. <laughs> After 100 days, the killings finally came to an end as Rwandan patriotic front troops led by Paul Kagame, Rwanda's current president, defeated the rebel extremists and took control of the country. Of course, there's more to the story than this. I won't go deep into all that because the specifics of the genocide are not the focus of this story. Hi, my name is Tabitha Mamira. I live in Michigan, um, but I'm originally from Rwanda and grew up in Uganda as well. Tabitha wears many hats. She's a clinical psychologist, activist, business owner, and motivational speaker. As she told us in her introduction, she's Rwandan. However, she and her family lived as refugees in Uganda for a while. Yeah, so the, the thing that most people don't know about the Rwandan genocide it's not, it didn't just start in 1994. This started in 1959. And so from back then, there would be high, you know, where the country is really unstable. And then it kind of stabilizes a little bit and then it gets worse. So from the 50s, um, Rwandans would always move, some moved to Tanzania, some would move to Uganda, to Congo, which was Zaire back then. So my great grandparents would do that and then they'd move back to Rwanda have some kids, and then it's 60s, it got bad again. They moved to Uganda. So it was always a back and forth. Um, but in 1994, when that big genocide that everybody knows about happened, we were already in Uganda, luckily. So um, that's kind of, to kind of give context. Yeah, just as she mentioned, there was a lot of tension and agitation between the two tribes in Rwanda, which often caused people like Tabitha's family to flee for their safety. Tabitha and her four siblings were pretty young when all of this was going on. So they were kind of shielded from a lot of the chaos at the time. We are all very close in terms of if you walk in a room, we could be in a whole new place filled with people. But if any of our siblings, if anybody's in that space, we will find gravitating to each other. We walk in a living room and we're all piled up next to each other on one couch, even if the other spaces so we're very close and we will show up and fight for each other, but we never talked about anything serious. Until now that we have children, we all started to be like, and it turns out we all remember our childhoods differently. Um, so we were, <laughs> anything fun, we're together, anything, anybody needs anything, we will show up, but we've ne we never had, I think it's a cultural thing too, that everybody keeps to themselves the things that matter and we only show up our happy faces, even with each other. So if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Tabitha and her siblings moved to Mengo, a slum community in Kampala, 
Uganda's capital, in her early years, they lived among other Rwandan refugees and went to school there. What I remember was, you know, when you're in a situation, you don't realize that you're poor because everybody else lives the way you live. So mm-hmm. everything I'm sharing now is hindsight. Because growing up, I had, I felt like I had everything I needed in the world. Uh, we went to school. Some kids would be chased out of school for no school fees. I would never once, uh, pay, I don't know how they did it, because my mom had a seventh grade education. She got pulled out of school because they couldn't pay for her. But she hustled and did businesses and everything she could. I get what Tabitha is saying. Everyone around her lived pretty much the same way. So she had nothing to compare their standard of living to. Her parents also did a great job sheltering their kids from the harsh realities of living in the slum. Growing up within a community of refugees in Uganda meant that Tabitha was in the dark about her Rwandese heritage. She just assumed that Kinya Rwanda, her language, was just another one in Uganda, and that Rwanda was a Ugandan tribe. It wasn't until she turned nine that she figured out she was wrong about it all. And then when the the bigger genocide happened in 94, that's when I started seeing my parents get panics and they're always listening to radios and um, then the RPF, the biggest, the army that went to stop the war, most of them came from Uganda, including the president now. He was in the Ugandan army. And so my parents got really engaged and involved in like fundraising for them to go help in in Rwanda. Um, And then the piece that really made it clear that I was not Ugandan were the students our friends and people in the neighborhoods started retaliating against us, uh, saying, go home, you're taking our resources, all these Rwandans here. And they would throw people in, a, I guess, trigger warning, just uh, a lot of detail on the war, but they would throw dead bodies in the rivers during the war, and those, some of those rivers were flowing into Uganda from Rwanda. And because of that, they would stop people from eating fish because obviously that would not be safe. Then Ugandans, that, that's one of the main source of food. They would get angry at Rwandans like, You're killing our food. You're taking up our resources. And so we started getting bullied and really called out. That's when I was, I, I was nine then and confused. What do you mean go home? I thought this was home. And um, then slowly but surely they started explaining to us that oh actually we do have a home we're refugees and we're raised you know do all these activities to support um, the RPF in returning and and start listening and paying attention to um, what's happening in Rwanda so yeah I I had no idea till I was nine that I am not Ugandan. (laughs) When the genocide ended Tabitha and her family moved back to Rwanda they sorely needed a break from all the bullying and discrimination they had experienced in Uganda. But home wasn't what they thought it would be. Hi, my name is Aisha Salahuddin, and I like girls. This is a podcast about African women and the different experiences life throws at us for being women. If you haven't listened to season one of the podcast, I highly recommend that you do after this episode. It's available on the podcast streaming platform that you're listening on right now. On today's episode, 
we follow Tabitha's journey into discovering her Rwandese roots and experiencing sexual violence. In November 1994, Tabitha moved back to Rwanda with her mom and sister. Both her elder siblings had to stay back in Uganda to complete their semester as they were nearly done with school. Their father stayed back with them. There are also songs made about Rwanda where they say God is in every other country during the day, but he sleeps in Rwanda. Or that is a land of milk and honey. I mean, everything was just glamorized about what Rwanda is in in all the work toward supporting the RPF was so that they get to also be part of this wonderful place. Um, It's like heaven on earth pretty much. And that's what I had in mind. When my mom was one of the first few people who decided to return as soon as the war ended. I mean, it's not even a month after. And then decided, because we were the younger ones, that we should go with her. Because my older siblings were still in school in Uganda, so they stayed back with my dad. And we just got on a bus and were excited about this land of milk and honey. But of course we had no sense of what a war does to a country and what that all means. I asked Tabitha what it was like to find out that Rwanda wasn't the paradise they thought it would be. So as we're driving, we start seeing dead bodies on the sides of the street, on the roads, as we're going, just random clothes um, all over different fields. And then once we were getting closer into the city, we're we're like, okay, maybe because we're still in the village, that's why it looks this way, you know, trying to um, rationalize what we're seeing that doesn't match our picture. And we got in Kigali, the capital, where my mom was staying at the time, and all the buildings, especially vividly remember the parliament, and it had big holes in the walls from bombs, of course, and from gunshots, and houses are half, most of them are half built. And when we started school, we were all in just one big open space because most of the schools were destroyed, hospitals were destroyed. So none of it, none of it made sense. So Rwanda was not what Tabitha expected, but she was comforted by the little things, like the fact that their new apartment had its own bathroom, unlike when they lived in the slum in Mengo. Inside bathroom, that was our first time ever. We had a, a nice gated area, a little gazebo, and that was really for us just like, oh, okay. So in spite of what was outside of our home, inside our home, it was definitely much nicer than anything we had ever seen before. And the school we were going to was the only English-speaking school. Therefore, it was treated yeah. as one of the nice ones. So we felt a little special in being home in that sense. Tabitha's mom started a trading business to make life comfortable for her daughters. She would travel to Uganda and other African countries to buy goods and then bring them back to be sold in Rwanda. Um, so for her, she saw one, an opportunity to go home and two, an opportunity for business. And that's why she made us all move that quickly back mm-hmm. to Rwanda. So because, of course, after a war, most <clears throat> services and goods have shut down. She would go all over, not just back to Uganda, she'd go to Congo, she'd go to Kenya. She had only a seventh grade education, but proved herself to be uh, a successful businesswoman in her own way. And 
while doing all of that, and my dad was still in school, he was a pastor, he was still trying to finish out. She was the sole breadwinner for all of us. She helped pay for my dad and all five of her kids to go to school. Remember that Tabitha and her siblings lived pretty sheltered lives as kids in Uganda. With their mom in Water Rwanda, their life was sheltered too. It made Tabitha unaware of so many things that went on in her immediate environment, including sexual education. Two years after their move back to Rwanda, when she was about 11 years old, Tabitha was sexually abused. It was someone her family trusted. He was someone known and respected within the community. Yeah, this is somebody we called uncle. We were not blood relatives, but... When we lived in Uganda, uh, in that community, we were all neighbors. Our, his kids were our age, so we all played together. And then when we, after the war, when we moved back to Rwanda, we also ended up being neighbors again. So it, actually at one point, he also worked with my mom in business, in the different uh, shops and all that kind of thing. She said when the abuse was happening to her, she just froze. And so, for multiple reasons, I don't go back there because somebody who is going through it or hasn't had the opportunity to start healing could be listening and get really triggered. And it doesn't serve in anybody's healing or understanding, in my opinion, um, of how to get past, not get past, but start healing from that situation. And then also for me, that was... In my own journey, it was um, it didn't it didn't feel like it was something useful to my healing to go back to put myself back there to remember what all that feels like. What did I think? What did I do? Mm-hmm. So, as part of my healing, I was intentional not to de- deny um, that it happened, but I knew that it wouldn't be helpful for me to force myself to go back down that memory lane, so to speak. Talking about your abuse can be triggering, so I completely respect Tabitha's decision not to dwell on it. Just know that, as a child, that experience was incredibly hard on her, especially as she had no one to talk to about what happened to her. Let's take a break. When we get back, I'll tell you what happened to Tabitha next. I'm a product designer and developer based in Abuja, and I build websites, mobile apps, you name it. For all my clients, I recommend using Paystack to collect payments, and let me share why. First, integration is completely free. Paystack only charges a small fee per successful payment, so they only make money if you make money. Number two, the actual technical integration is super easy. I'm able to add live payments to a website in minutes. Another reason I recommend Paystack is the high success rates. This reduces the number of frustrated customers reaching out to you. Yet another benefit is that Paystack has a lot of payment options. Customers are able to pay with bank transfer, Apple Pay, their debit card, and so much more. And for many of my clients, their absolute favorite perk is a free Paystack mobile app that allows them to see payments as they're coming in, in real time. I recommend Paystack to all my clients because it makes receiving payments one less thing to worry about. And if you'd like to see for yourself, start by creating a free account at paystack.com forward slash I like girls. Welcome back. Tabitha pretty much just went out of her way to avoid her abuser. If he came visiting, she pretended to be asleep. And if her family had cause to visit his house, she simply made up an excuse not to go. 
A couple of years later, when she turned 14, her family moved to the U.S. When she was in the 10th grade there, she took an interest in psychology. I had no idea what psychology was. <laughs> it was just like, hmm, sounds cool. <laughs> and the first day, the teacher said, it gives, it introduce, he will introduce us to how we can heal the mind through psychology. And that's all I remembered was like healing of the mind. What? I had never heard anything like that. And, but in my mind, I was thinking for Rwanda as a country that has gone through a genocide and our culture, we don't talk about anything. Like, ooh, this could be life-changing for my people. So like, from now on, that is what I'm going to pursue. While the genocide was ongoing, many women were raped and left pregnant by the very men who tore their families apart. It's hard to imagine the horror and pain these women must have gone through. Tabitha thought about them, and that inspired her desire to study psychology. In 2006, she earned her bachelor's degree in psychology from the Western Michigan University. And in 2009, she completed a master's degree in clinical psychology from Ball State University. So, Tabitha pretty much just did her work as a mental health therapist in the U.S. She said, for the most part, she never got triggered by the experiences of her patients, who, like her, were sometimes survivors of sexual violence. Um, and so for me, I think, genuinely, I was in it for helping other people to heal. Yeah. And I didn't think I needed it. I thought, because I had put up enough survival walls that I felt like I was good and I had never gone to therapy. I had never processed anything, but I was functional. I was always um, a good student, a good friend, a great, great support system. So I didn't, I never thought I needed this. I, I, so yeah, Tabitha continued to do her thing. At some point, after having her kids, she took a break to be a stay-at-home mom and to focus on getting her PhD in clinical psychology. So fast forwarded and I have kids now, I'm married, and, and it's almost like I was in this, um, it felt like I was sleepwalking through life for those few years. And it's almost like I woke up and like, what in the world happened to my life? <laughs> so I'm living in these suburbs and stay-at-home mom, like, what in the world mm -hmm. is this? So I wanted to get back to using my education and to really following my um, calling and purpose. She did follow that calling. In 2015, she volunteered with a non-profit to extend her services to women in Kanungu, Uganda, for a project meant to help women with trauma. And my, when I went to Kanungu, it was more of a, a volunteer to say, okay, I know this community, excuse me, had experienced a lot of trauma, you know, poverty and HIV AIDS, the epidemic back then. So, yeah, yeah, I just went to say, okay, how can you use me? I just need to do something to feel purposeful and helpful back to the healing of helping others heal. And that's when that uh, one teacher told us, oh, yeah. Okay, there's this nine-year-old who got assaulted yesterday. She's in class. Maybe you can start with her. I'm like, what? 
Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> it was so nonchalant. It just sounded like this is what happens every day, almost like, oh, she just fell. You know, it was so crazy. And then that's how it all started. And just me talking to her and going like, what? It wasn't even the first time for her. And then two more came forward. And that was when it really dawned on me. Basically, Tabitha saw and treated many young girls who had been sexually abused. Their stories were so heartbreaking that Tabitha pretty much lost it. Yeah, that five-year-old, it was all within the same week. Um, and she was assaulted by her grandfather, who was HIV positive. And grandma is the one who found them. But they tried wow. to get her uh, the, the help she needed right away because uh, that medication is called Wartep that could help you um, not get a virus or any STDs after with, if you take it within the 72-hour window. And they couldn't afford the what's equivalent to $5 um, in that window. They could not find that money. And so that little girl became HIV positive. By the time they found me and asked to ask for help, it was already past that time. Um, and that oh. just, whew, that's what pushed me over the edge. The news of these kids hit Tabitha hard. So hard that her past trauma of sexual abuse began to resurface as she counseled and offered them treatment. When she returned to the U.S. after that outreach in Uganda, Tabitha checked herself into therapy. As a therapist herself, she recognized how much she needed it. In therapy with a nice black woman, she found a safe space to shed all of the baggage she had closed off as a child. And then I went, and literally the first session, she just said, hello. <laughs> what can we, you know, just the opening question, and I started crying. Like, what in the oh. world happened? <laughs> Because right away, I felt vulnerable, which I think was the biggest fear for me. I had vulnerability. Because part of the trauma, especially that kind of trauma, it feels like if I let my guard down, this could happen again. Or it happened because I let my guard down. So I'm going to be the strongest, no emotion. I'll never be vulnerable again for somebody to take advantage of me. So that always was part of how I presented Therapy broke all her walls and made her feel safe enough to express herself without judgment. She was able to walk through her childhood assault as well. Tabitha said it also helped her to become a more effective therapist to her patients. And the, one of the other big reasons I went to it was that I didn't want to take, I no longer wanted to treat or support these little girls from a place it's the analogy probably I used before I always use is giving directions to a place you have never been doesn't seem the same as yeah. telling somebody to go in a place you've been and I knew that for me to be authentic and to really truly support and see these girls from where they are I had to do the work in order to help them through that really difficult process and so I, I had to go there before taking them there um and I started showing up differently. I was okay with emotions. And now I cry for each and every little reason, which is also kind of annoying. <laughs> but <laughs> I got in touch with my emotions a little too much. <laughs> but which is okay. Um, it is all 
part of being human. It's part of being vulnerable and authentic and letting yourself feel what it is you're feeling. And that's what therapy did for me. I get it. Tabitha got in touch with her emotions and used the clarity from doing so to teach and treat young girls. After the break, we'll hear all about Tabitha's non-profit. So I run a cleaning business where the people in my neighborhood can easily book a cleaning for their homes. I like that I can help busy mothers take care of cleaning so they can focus on everything else. Last Monday evening, I was talking with one of my neighbors, Simi, and I was telling her how hard it was for me to keep track of payments. I have a big blue notebook where I track my customers and how much they owe. It's really stressful. So Simi just asked me, Bisi, do you know Paystack? She told me that with Paystack, I can instantly send an invoice to my customers online, and my customers can pay with card, USSD, or bank transfer. I'm not too familiar with all these tech things, but Simi showed me where to set up my account, and it was so easy. So since then, I've been using Paystack invoices. I send electronic reminders to my customers about payments, and I get an alert on the app when they pay me, all from my mobile phone. No more big blue book. You too can create simple invoices using Paystack. Start by opening a free account on paystack.com forward slash I like girls. Tabitha was doing well in therapy, but there was still something else on her mind. She couldn't stop thinking about the girls from Kanungu. She wanted to help more of them, and she thought about starting her own organization, a non-profit to help young survivors of sexual violence. And I was like, there's no way. I have no experience in running a non-profit. I don't know what I'm doing outside of supporting these kids in healing. But from that point of, like, why do you get the luxury to wait when they're hurting now? And with my Christian upbringing, it felt like God was just telling me, all I had to do was say yes to the calling because I knew this was not a coincidence. Yeah. She knew something had to be done about her calling. So she decided to take up the cases of the three girls she met while at Kanungu. She enlisted the help of a nurse on the ground who was happy to work for free for a while. Then funding for her work started trickling in gradually. And soon her nonprofit organization, Mutera Global Healing, was born. Some people who were there on that same trip said we saw what happened we know this is a problem if you're going to do something about it we'll pay we'll help we'll help and so they started donating somebody gives you a hundred dollars here somebody gives you 50 here like oh cool and then slowly but surely um somebody will say i'll help you register i'll help you do this and the work started just like that i didn't have to know anything i the minute i was ready to to do the work, the, the path started clearing up. And to this day that um, I left that area, but the work continues in the community. At Mutera Global Healing, Tabitha says she adopted listening as a strategy for helping the people in the different communities that they work in. She did this as a way to easily identify the problems they had without imposing on them in any capacity. For example, instead of providing straight-up counseling for survivors of sexual violence, she catered to their need for immediate medical attention before taking other steps. 
Mutarak Dobal Healing also helps with the legal support as well. They work to remove all possible bottlenecks that can hinder the arrest of perpetrators. So today, her nonprofit operates in Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, and the US. According to their website, they've provided mental health support and medical services to over 250 people. It's not all peachy though. Running Mutara Global Healing comes with challenges too. For instance, she says fundraising can get really hard. The fundraising, it takes a different skill set that I don't think I have. Because <laughs> I don't know you can learn this. So it's really challenging because you have to spend this time not only raising the money, but also then keeping up with the donors and reports and grants. And so in the end, you start kind of, it has to be a full-time position. Um, and that yeah. makes it so difficult for me. But I'm like, it's part of the job. So the parts that I can't do or I know are not in my wheelhouse, there's somebody there who actually enjoys this. And so let me find the right people to do the parts that I'm not good at or I don't like to do. And then I do what I like to do. And that's kind of an easier way to navigate it or you do. Despite this challenge, Tabitha is motivated by the knowledge she's making the world a much better place for the people coming behind her. She's also teaching her kids a lot of the things she wished she was taught growing up. There's no better example of this than the proud moment she shares with me. It involves one of her twin daughters who did something stunning when she was about six years old. <laughs> Where we were at a family gathering kind of thing. I can't remember exactly for what reason. It's a potluck. Everybody's eating music, all of that fun stuff. And uh, she had, she was, she was probably like six wearing a little tight shirt and her belly was poking out a little bit from the shirt. And this man comes up closer and he's like, oh, hey, little girl. She doesn't know him. He doesn't know her and puts his finger in her stomach and just goes, oh, looks like somebody had a lot of cake. And this, my daughter steps aside and looks him in the eye and he goes, first of all, that is body shaming. And second of all, you didn't ask permission to touch my body. <laughs> he was in shock. He starts looking around. I could see them from a corner, but I didn't make it known that I'm, I'm watching. And he's looking around, probably wondering, who is this child's parent? And how can she talk to me like this? He was just shocked and she walked away. <laughs> And just came over. I'm like, are you okay? And she tells me everything. And I'm like, do you need me to do anything? She goes, no, I think I handled it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I 100% stand Tabitha's daughter for being so self-aware. And I stand Tabitha for raising such an amazing girl. As we wrapped up our chats, I realized that I couldn't let Tabitha go without asking her for tips on how to protect children around us from sexual abuse and violence. Best believe she had a lot to say. The body, the giving kids the autonomy to, if it's something as simple as naming their private parts by name, that's a vagina, that's a penis, like mm -hmm. there's no shame around your body. And giving them the tools, the language, it's so key. Because even if they, that does happen to them, they will have language to report. They will know that this is not off the table at home. So I'm giving them that language. Um, 
what's okay, what's not okay. Good touch, bad touch, trust. That makes sense. When children are taught about parts of their bodies correctly, it becomes easier for them to set and exert their boundaries. The mystifying part of the body makes it such that any discomfort or less than normal incidents get reported and addressed immediately. We have to teach, because uh, we know prevalence is mainly boys and men as perpetrators. We have to be teaching both and consent for both boys and girls. And a lot of boys are also one in six are also assaulted. We usually leave them out of the conversation. So it has to be across gender roles. We have to make sure everybody understands the only cause of sexual violence, rape, defilement, is the rapist. It's never yeah. the victim. And once we change that narrative, I think it will empower us to break the silence. Tabitha also offers some words of encouragement to survivors of sexual violence who might be listening. And I can't think of a better place to end this episode than with her words. The main thing that I hope everybody knows and understands is that they are not alone, that they are loved, this was not their fault, and that we, they have a big community, a global community that is fighting every day that this ends and that healing is possible. It's a process, it's a journey, but it is possible. And no matter what happens, they are not their trauma. You are more than what happened to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Like Girls. I Like Girls is produced by 27 Productions. If you want to get in touch, visit 27productions.co and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at I Like Girls Pod. Also, please rate and review us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on. Rating us helps people to discover the podcast. This episode is produced and written by me, Aisha Salahuddin, and Samia Talamutu. Our audio engineers are Duski and Mo Isu. Peter Akinusi is our editor, and our theme music is by Bangs with a double G. The rest of the music you heard throughout this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Paystack for sponsoring this episode. I'll catch you on the next one.